welcome to Charting the Territories. My name is Al Getz, and since we always release these podcasts on the fourth Thursday of every month, that means in November it comes out on Thanksgiving Day. So if you are listening the day it comes out, I hope you are having a wonderful time uh, with whether you're with family or doing something else. I hope they have lots of things to be thankful for. I am very thankful for my co-host who has been with me through thick and thin and is still here, John Boucher. John, how are you doing? Hello, and happy Thanksgiving, listeners. Gobble, gobble to everyone in, in the U.S. And uh, I guess gobble, gobble to all our non-U.S. We, yeah, we do have listeners outside the U.S. Not a whole lot, so I uh, hopefully I did not offend Anyone that does not celebrate Thanksgiving, and of course, if Chandler Bing from Friends is listening, I know he doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving, so hopefully, you know, you don't take that too personally, Chandler Bing. This month on Charting the Territories, we're going to look at the fourth quarter of 1974 in Leroy McGurk's wrestling territory. Andre the Giant makes his first appearances in this territory during the quarter, but interestingly enough, John... He's not the biggest man to step foot in a McGurk ring during the quarter. In fact, he's not even the second biggest man. You see, Oklahoma and Louisiana was truly the land of the Giants in the fall of 1974, as the McGuire twins came in as well. So both Benny and Billy were heavier than Andre the Giant. And if you want to be really technical, Andre would have actually been the fourth biggest entity to step in the ring, as we also had some appearances from Gentleman Ben, the wrestling bear, who I believe was heavier than Andre. So Andre the Giant, uh, I think it was in 74 that he debuted in most territories uh, in the U.S. Of course, he had been in Canada prior to that, and I believe he had been in the AWA in 73, but 74 was the year that he really started making the rounds in the United States. And it wasn't until later in the year that he got all the way down to Louisiana, Oklahoma, and the surrounding areas. So what were your earliest memories of Andre the Giant? Of course, you and I both grew up in the Northeast uh, and around the same time frame. So I would imagine it was his appearances in the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Uh, I remember the first time I saw him uh, very vividly. Uh, probably 1983, uh, and I think it was like I think it was the midnight show, the championship wrestling show that was on at midnight. Um, and you know, back then in in '83, he wasn't exclusively uh, WWF yet. He would just be. He was still sort of traveling, doing right. the doing doing the circuit. So you didn't you didn't see him every week. Uh, it was very every couple months you'd see him, and it was just I just remember him coming out through the blue curtain, and the way they had the camera set up. The camera was like almost at belly button level, <laughs> you know, following him out of the curtain, and it was just like it was just like this bizarre, amazing. I was like, what is happening yeah. with this guy? This guy looks amazing. Looks it's, like it's, a giant. It's, yeah, it's a weird. It's it's hard to explain. I feel like such an old person trying. It's hard to. It's hard to explain to these kids. These uh, but kids like, these I, days, yeah. Never but, having seen anything like that, I'm like, right. oh my god, what is this? Guy? And you never saw anyone so quite so quite so dominant, you know. And then when, it, which made everything that would happen a few years later, 
that's you know it was such such a big deal for us at that age. Absolutely. Uh, so speaking of big men, Stan Hansen and Frank Goodish formed a tag team in the fall of 1974 and tried to rejuvenate a division that had seen tough times for much of the year. We're also going to focus on a wrestler who had numerous stints in the territory over the years. In fact, one might say his presence in a McGurk ring was not unusual. <laughs> and also Johnny Eagles fused with Skandor Akbar after finding out that when you mess with Akbar at this point in time, you're going to get burned. Another thing we're going to do this month, John, earlier uh, in the month, both you and I submitted our Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame ballots. And later on in the podcast, we will each reveal our picks and talk a little bit about why we chose who we did. So we're going to have, uh, it's not a gender reveal party, but it's a <laughs> ballot reveal party. Hopefully there are no explosions. Yeah, I hope uh, my tied to this. And of course, all our regular features, including John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia, This Month I Learned, and we kick things off with Shit John Bought Me Off eBay. Oh, yeah. And this month, John bought me an album and for you mm -hmm. kids. So speaking of the kids earlier who don't know these, these archaic things we're talking about, uh, this is a uh, before CDs, before MP3s, there were uh, LPs, Long Plays, albums and this album is by sergeant slaughter <laughs> and somebody named camouflage yeah yeah and the title of the album is rocks america yeah that they do uh so there's a picture on the on the cover of sarge and this camouflage person along <laughs> with the statue of liberty playing a guitar yeah so, do you know anything about this camouflage person? So, the story that I, I, I've heard about this this record is that you know Sarge always would tell that story about how you know he gave, he gave the tape of the Marine Corps hymn to to Vince Senior or Gorilla Monsoon or Phil Zacco or one of those guys at the old Hamburg Allentown TV tape, and they loved it. You know, crowd reacted to it. He helped get Sarge over as a heel. Uh, so Sarge is talked about that he had been kicking around the idea of coming up with his own song to use as as entrance music for a while, and he had a friend who uh, was a singer songwriter, and I'm assuming that guy is uh, Michael Salavanto, who is credited with co-writing a lot of these songs along with co-engineering, co-producing, and, and co-mixing. Um, apparently, the story. Uh, initially, it was for Sarge to go into the studio with the band Autograph. Do you remember Autograph? Turn up at the sure. radio. They were actually yeah. the first band I ever saw live because they wow. opened for Van Halen. Oh, wow. that's a great! Oh, eighty-four. That's a great. Yep. Oh, that's a my thirteenth birthday. My brother took me to Madison Square Garden to see Van Halen with Autograph opening. Oh, wow! Well, yeah, they were supposed to be the backing band, and that didn't didn't happen, which could be sounds crazy to just think about it. But I guess that idea got scrapped and they end up using all these sort of like anonymous session guys. And usually with like the wrestling records, like a lot of the Memphis stuff, especially you'll find at least someone on there who is someone of note. Right. Uh, you I, know, I like, was looking at the uh, at the liner <laughs> notes and, and no, no, I don't no. see that. Now, although <laughs> I did find something interesting. The list of people providing background vocals contains Sergeant Slaughter and Bob Remus. <laughs> so I wonder if this was like if, I wonder if he like found a way to get two paychecks out of the deal. 
Yeah, if maybe he said, like a publishing if he said thing. I was yeah. Sergeant Slaughter doing background vocals, and also my friend Bob Remus did some background vocals, so he needs to get paid too. Uh, but yes, yeah, so we're gonna uh, we're gonna play a, a few parts of some of the songs. Of course, his big hit was uh, called, not surprisingly, "The Cobra Clutch." So here is Sergeant Slaughter and Camouflage with Cobra Clutch. Sergeant Slaughter, who sounds, I don't know what he was doing when he sang, when he threw in that uh, little background vocal at the end, but uh, he was either running up a long flight of stairs or he was uh, perhaps occupied in the bedroom. <laughs> so the album, as you, as you can imagine, the album features several songs with uh, America themed titles. There is uh, Happy Birthday, Miss Liberty. There is a song called Missing in Action, uh, um, uh, but there's also a reworking of a actual popular song. John, who is your favorite soap opera actor turned 80s pop singer, not named Jack Wagner? Oh, definitely Rick Springfield. Yes, mine too. And so uh, you're familiar with uh, Rick Springfield's hit Love Somebody? Uh, vaguely. I couldn't uh, hum it for you, but I... But I, well, but I... Well, instead of you humming it, let's have Sergeant Slaughter and Camouflage perform their uh, take on this, which is called, instead of Love Somebody, it is Love Your Country. Oh, very nice. Again, we should start rearranging all our 
Just a little rough with the singing. Let's uh, let let's be honest. So, uh, aside from the original songs, and aside from the one uh, interpretation, there are actually a couple of cover songs on the album as well. Uh, there's a cover of "Temptation Eyes," which I believe was from the Grassroots. Oh, yeah, and there's yep. another cover song. One of my guilty pleasure artists, John, is Neil Diamond. Oh, I love Neil Diamond. Yeah. And one of my guilty pleasure songs from my guilty pleasure artist is this one. There you have it. I also want to yeah. mention uh, the album was actually sent in what I believe was its original sealed wrapping. Oh, wow. Uh, oh. So in order to, uh, I, I had to, I had to hear this. I absolutely had to. So I literally <laughs> opened it up and it, the album absolutely looked like it had never been played before. So this was a, uh, this was a uh, mint in, mint in box, mint nice. in package. Uh, and now it's and now that I've opened it up and played it, it's now worthless. But in the in the liner notes on the back, he also gives a thanks. And John, you'll know these names because you grew up in New York to a couple of DJs uh, from radio stations in New York from WPLJ Radio Power ninety five, mm. Jim Kerr. Oh yeah. Also from K Rock, Jay Thomas. Oh yeah. And that's yeah. he he was the former actor, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. And apparently Jay Thomas at K-Rock was the first one to play the Cobra Clutch. I, I listened to a lot of K-Rock and I never heard this this damn song. I, <laughs> no, me neither. I, 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 I would have turned, turned off the radio and never listened to it again. 
<laughs> I still have my uh, my WPLJ ninety five point five FM FM card. Remember those things you can mail I away do, and get yeah. your, your FM. I still have my FM card in my in my wallet just in case I need it. I mean, yeah, you never know when the need might arise. So honestly, this was one of the coolest uh, items. We've been doing this for a while now. I've gotten a a wide variety of things. I loved uh, all the stuff from uh, Titanus and El Ring. I loved the Michael Hayes uh, How to Spot a Bully uh, (laughs) booklet. Uh, This one is really great as well. So thank you. Uh, Again, listeners, John is authorized to spend about $50 of my money each and every month buying me shit off eBay. We'll now uh, go back to our coverage. Well, we'll now continue our coverage of 1974. We are going to cover the fourth quarter. And 74 was the first full year without Danny Hodge in the territory, dating all the way back to his pro debut in October 1959. Now, of course, there were some times when he would leave for a few months to go somewhere else, but he was always in McGurk's territory for a good part of every calendar year from his debut all the way through December 1973 when he left. So he's gone now for a year. Ken Mantell had taken his place as the NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion and top babyface in the territory, feuding with Skandor Akbar and Buck Robley. But Mantell leaves in mid-November for a three-week tour of all Japan, and the focus is placed on some other wrestlers with Mantell having just the sixth highest average weekly spot rating, which is the statistic we use that measures a wrestler's average position on the cards. Ahead of him are heels Akbar and Robley, babyfaces Bob Sweetan and Dr. X, and Stan Hansen, who turned heel early in the quarter and feuded with Sweetan. Uh, we mentioned this previously, both Hansen and Frank Goodish, when they came into this territory, were initially babyfaces, and both of them turned, uh, Goodish turned uh, at the end of the summer, and Hansen turns at the beginning of the fall. So can you picture a young Frank Goodish who's probably, uh, you know, he did a great job of looking uncoordinated, looking like an uncoordinated brawler in later <laughs> years. But at this point in time, given that he had only had two pro matches before coming to McGurk's territory, mm. He probably looked was was very unpolished, and I just can't picture him at his size being a babyface. I know it's, it's it's strange. I was thinking the exact same thing when you <laughs> you mentioned that. Uh, even more so than Hanson. Hanson, I could I can I could picture a little more so, maybe because of his you know his his lighter lighter hair color. Uh, and he and, and Stan sort of, despite being like a, a fearsome heel, you could see him seeing him now as a as a happy older gentleman you could see him having that sort of goofy smile and 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 being a baby face even at that size with goodish i can't see it ever you yeah. know hansen even even when he was at his most vicious he still had that almost dick murdoch-esque aw shucks part of exactly. his personality show through every now and then that you could tell you know he was he wasn't really all that bad. He was just drawn that way, uh, like <laughs> Jessica Rabbit once said. So, but yeah, it's just so interesting to see these wrestlers that we know and love in certain roles and to try and picture them being used in different roles. And especially in the case of Hansen, his first year, he's a prelim guy in Amarillo. 
And he's, you know, he's trading wins and losses with other prelim wrestlers, but he's also putting over, uh, you know, a lot of push entities. Um, one of his earliest matches, some of his earliest matches were against uh, Jumbo Saruda, which is just wild to think about. And then, of course, here, the two of them teaming up in 1974. And of course, years later, both of them would become mega stars in Japan. It's just wild to see. And that's one of the reasons why I like to chart these territories because you, you see all these things that you didn't really think about. And for more on the spot ratings and the other stats that we use, of course, you can visit our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. We discuss the top six wrestlers by spot rating, all of whom were main eventers. And other main eventers in the territory in the fall of 1974 were Grizzly Smith, Rip Tyler, and Tom Jones. Tyler is finishing up his run in the territory, which saw him come in late in 1973, end up winning the North American title, and him and quote-unquote brother, Randy Tyler, uh, forming a tag team. Meanwhile, Jones is returning for the first time since late 1972, having spent most of his time away in East Texas, Georgia, and Florida. And of course, as I alluded to earlier, it was not unusual to see Tom Jones in this territory, as he had numerous stints over the years. I wonder if female fans threw their undergarments <laughs> into the ring while Tom Jones was wrestling. He was pretty cool looking and some of his little, uh, he's got a little a nice ring do. gear. Yeah, he's got, and he's got a really nice hairdo, uh, yeah. uh, almost like you know what Elvis had uh, in yeah. the day. I don't know what you call that. Um, but yeah, I want to talk a little bit about Tom Jones because – Every every year around this time when it's Observer Hall of Fame season, I always get to thinking about Junkyard Dog and Sputnik Monroe, who have been on the ballot for a while and, and, and have not, at this point, been able to get in. And the two of them, one of the most important things going for them is, is that historical significance of breaking down barriers. Uh, Junkyard Dog for becoming the de facto king of New Orleans in a sport where black men in the South had previously been relegated to a spot just below the top guys. They were always booked strongly. They were almost always baby faces, of course, with a few exceptions, but they were usually not the top baby face. And, and Junkyard Dog, of course, uh, demolished that glass ceiling and Sputnik for his role in desegregating arenas in the South. But Tom Jones was a pioneer in his own right. He was born in Savannah. He moved uh, to Fort Lauderdale when he was 20 years old, but then he made his way up to Indianapolis to work in a factory. He watched wrestling regularly, attended wrestling events in Indianapolis, and eventually learned about Tony Santos's school in Boston. He turned pro in 1964 and wrestled in the Northeast and Upper Midwest for a few years with some forays into the South. And, and John, you found an article written uh, in 2013 on Slam Wrestling when Tom first started having significant health issues. And there was uh, a quote, a statement there from Bill Watts that you uh, found interesting and, and sort of asked me if we could uh, dig into it a little more. So, John, uh, tell us what Bill Watts said in that Slam Wrestling article about Tom Jones. Yeah, Watts in this article says that uh, Tom was the first black wrestler to wrestle against a white wrestler in Louisiana. Um, and with 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 anything in wrestling, not not just I, I didn't just flag it because it was Watts, but with any of this sort of stuff in wrestling, you sort of my jaded fan uh, 
reaction is always to raise an eyebrow first. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we can't go all the way back to the beginning of wrestling. But what I can tell you is this. I've looked a little bit uh, at the time prior to McGurk running Louisiana when it was uh, at one point a part of Gulf Coast. And at one point, parts of Western Louisiana were actually booked out of East Texas. And I couldn't find any cases where there was a black wrestler wrestling against white opponents. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, but it definitely did not happen um, when McGurk, from the time when McGurk took over Louisiana. He started in 1961, uh, although by the end of the year, he was only running in the northern part of the state in Shreveport and Monroe. And into wasn't until 1968 when they started running the rest of the territory. But for all that time that McGurk was running Louisiana, uh, Tom would have been the first. So he huh. broke that barrier. And oh, wow. and not just that, but also in many Southern territories at the time, the black male wrestlers were booked in the same manner as the so-called special attractions, the female wrestlers and the little persons. They would come in for a week or so at a time and wrestle against one another. Uh, there's an interview with Scott Teal from one of his Whatever Happened To series where Tom talks about his early years that he was based in Indiana, but him and another wrestler named Matt Jewell, who is better known as Bearcat Brown, would leave and head down south for sort of two weeks at a time uh, and work, you know, go go all the way down, work for a week on the way down, and then come back up working for a week, you know, mm -hmm. somewhere else. And in those cases, they would always wrestle against one another. So I looked into Tom Jones's record in Wrestling territories in the South. And the other question is, what do you consider the South? Is Florida the South? Is Texas the South when it comes to the, you know, the topic of race? And it really isn't. I guess we're talking about the Deep South, which would be mm, yeah. the ghoulish territory, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. And while Oklahoma and Arkansas aren't considered the Deep South, they're, they share that, that same sort of history and, and those same attitudes. So we'll look at those territories. Tom spent a week wrestling for Goulis in late 1965, and there he faced another black wrestler named Prince Pullins every night. In 1966, he and Bearcat Brown, as Matt Jewell, did two weeks in Florida um, where they wrestled against one another or would do mixed tags with two black women, Sweet Georgia Brown and Princess Ubangi. Tom and Matt then went to Gulf Coast and then spent a few weeks wrestling for Goulas. On August 25th in Chattanooga, Tom wrestled against Tojo Yamamoto, which is the first time I can find Tom wrestling against a non-black wrestler in the South. Huh. A few years earlier, Luther Lindsay was wrestling for Goulas, and when he worked in Goulas's main towns, he was only wrestling against other black wrestlers, but... On at least one occasion when he worked in uh, either Kingsport or Johnson City, which was a separate territory, but they would book half their crew from Goulas, and then the other half of the crew would be Ron and Don Wright, Whitey Caldwell, the other East Tennessee regulars. There, Luther Lindsay wrestled in a six-man tag uh, where, against uh, a variety of, uh, of you know, white wrestlers. Uh, so interesting that in Goulas's prime primary territory they would they wouldn't do that but that in east tennessee they did now huh. in october and we're still in 1966 in october tom and matt went back to tennessee and alabama for another two-week run 
sometimes wrestling against one another, and sometimes teaming up against Tojo and Professor Ito. In December, Tom and Matt do a one-week run in Georgia and close out the year with a week in Goulas, this time back to only wrestling against one another. Now, I want to go back to Luther Lindsay. Um, he, of course, is best known as uh, being Stu Hart's uh, favorite wrestler or, or someone that Stu held, held dearly, held close, always carried a picture of him around. In the wallet, Said, yeah. Yeah, in the wallet. Lindsay appears to break the race barrier for Goulas in Goulas's main territory in uh, 67, as he comes in November and wrestles against Red Roberts, who's white, uh, Shinya Kojika and Matoshi Okuma, who are Japanese, and Dr. Frank and the Mummy, who are monsters. <laughs> so, they, you know, he literally at this point, you know, all barriers were broken. He would yeah, wrestle against anybody. Whites, Japanese, <laughs> monsters, whatever. And Lindsay had been wrestling for Crockett dating back to 1962 and all that time had faced wrestlers of, of all ethnicities. So uh, even though South Carolina might be considered part of what we were calling the deep South, it appears that that did not apply to Crockett shows uh, at the time. But back to Tom Jones, we're now looking at January of 1968, where he spends three months in East Texas wrestling against a variety of opponents. Um, I'm not sure if he was the first black wrestler in Texas to wrestle against white opponents, but he was likely one of the first. Later in the year, he goes to Florida for four months. And again, same thing as in Texas, wrestling against all opponents. And he might have been the first to do it in Florida, but if he wasn't, it was still a relatively new thing because when he had been there in 66, they were still uh, only wrestling against one another. So sometime between 66 and, and 68, either the barrier was broken or Tom Jones broke it himself in 1968. And that brings us to his debut for McGurk in 1969. So, John, what did he do when he first came in in 1969? That uh, uh, Sundown Kid, is that who he faced? The Sundown Kid, who uh, also is known by Emerson Crozier. Ah. I did not know that. Yes. So... As best I can tell, they were the first black male wrestlers to work in this region of the country, particularly Oklahoma, northern Louisiana, Arkansas, in a few decades, although they occasionally had brought in some female black wrestlers. So Jones and Sundown Kid wrestle against one another for a couple of weeks, but then Sundown Kid leaves and Tom stays. And Tom quickly formed a regular tag team with Tarzan Baxter. And I believe this is the first integrated tag team in what we will call the Deep South, predating Bearcat Brown and Len Rossi by over three months. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Bearcat and Rossi are a, a legendary team yeah. in the Ghoulist territory, not just for their work and for you know what they drew, but also, of course, for breaking that barrier and being the first team of a black wrestler and a white wrestler in the territory. But just a few months earlier in this territory, Tom Jones had beat them with his team with Tarzan Baxter. And they teamed up for about six months. And then Jones leaves the territory in early 1970. A year later, he comes back and he soon forms a team with Billy Red Lions. And the two go on to win McGurk's version of the U.S. Tag Team titles, holding them for almost 10 months. And he would be a regular for McGurk for much of the next decade, coming in regularly for several month-long stints, 
When the Culkins split from McGurk, Tom worked for them in 1978. And after McGurk split from Watts the following year, Tom worked for Leroy for a while up until the McGurk territory closed up in March of 1982. So, yeah, Tom is a pretty important figure when yeah. it comes to the uh, integration, uh, desegregation of professional wrestling in the Deep South. He was a pioneer in many ways. And this is a man who did not finish high school, but he has said that all his experiences and all the traveling he did really, you know, he got uh, life lessons. He got uh, street smart, I guess. And, and from all accounts was a very intelligent, you know, man and was able to have, you know, conversations on a wide range of topics. Uh, He traveled, he got to go to Japan. I believe Danny Hodge got him uh, at least one tour of Japan. But of course, the question a lot of people want to know is how was Tom in the ring? Ah, Uh, that's the question. question. So, John, you have curated some YouTube footage of Tom in action. We've got five matches of his over a 15 year period of time against a variety of opponents. And of course, we will put these together as a playlist on our YouTube channel. So be sure to subscribe to Charting the Territories on YouTube. But John, tell us a little bit about some of the matches that they can find in this playlist. This is a nice little selection I've got here. I must say it's a good a good chunk of, it basically spans the better part of his career. The first one I've got is from uh, 1965, WWA TV against uh, Gene Kaniski. Uh, Kaniski looks so enormous here. I, you, <laughs> you forget how big Gene Kaniski is unless you, so you see him uh, in 1965 next to Tom Jones, and he just looks just a gigantic human being. Um, this is just, and I don't want to call it a squash, but 90% of the offense here goes to Kaniski. Jones is great, great at selling, sells his ass off, um, gets a little quick comeback with some headbutts, but Kaniski cuts him off and pins him after some backbreakers. Jones, you know, sells his ass off. Uh, it is this match is just you know a quick a quick TV match. Uh, after that, this one is good. This one is this was this one is a real a real banger. Got the Tom Jones versus the Sheik in uh, I think this is Detroit, in 1969. Um, the Sheik there was uh, Abdullah Farouk or, or the Weasel as they call him here, Ernie Roth, Grand Wizard, Mister Clean, whatever you want to call him, he's here. Uh, crowd is hot, hot, hot for this match. Uh, Tom Jones comes right out of the gate, just like punching and kicking. Uh, Sheik comes back quick with a little kick. Might have been a low blow, maybe, maybe not. And the Sheik actually does some wrestling here, which, uh, which, which really shocked me. The Sheik doing like, uh, Jones is on his stomach reeling from the low blow, and Sheik sort of has him in a, in a hammerlock sort of progress position slash grip and then he does like a forward roll sort of hyper extending tom jones's uh, shoulder and his elbow such a cool looking move and super surprising to see that from the sheik who you're just used to seeing stabbing people and throwing fire does it over and over and over uh and the fans are banging on the apron uh the sheep keeps doing it over and over ref calls for the bell uh sheik refuses to let go uh, Lord Layton is concerned, and the ref summons the whipper Billy Watson does a run in, who runs in and, and half-heartedly kicks it in the Sheik. Then the Sheik uh, sort of wholeheartedly begins to stomp and kick Watson, and the fans sort of close in on him outside the ring. Uh, and the Sheik just takes like four steps towards them, and they scatter. They just run like 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 
like pigeons. Uh, and so just a great little visual there of how scared people were of the Sheik. Um, and Leighton comes to the rescue. Watson and the Sheik brawl off camera. And the fans have surrounded the ring and they're throwing garbage at Ernie Roth in the ring. And also poor Tom Jones, who is still lying on his stomach selling the Sheik's move. It cuts off a little early. I would have kind of liked to have seen how this fiasco resolved itself. But it's a really cool uh, match, if, if for nothing else, just to see the fans throwing garbage in the ring at the end. It's a really a really cool sort of 70s TV visual. Um, then we go to Florida, 1976, uh, the great Mephisto, who we know and love. Uh, this is a, a quick, another quick TV one, but Tom Jones looks awesome. He looks, uh, this purple ring jacket, awesome hair. He looks like, remember Otis Day in the Nights from Animal House? Of course. Oh, he Otis, looks, he loves us. <laughs> he looks like he could, he could like be like, you know, a bass player in like Otis Day in the Nights. Uh, Mephisto also does a little prayer rug gimmick here. Uh, not much here. They just trade leg locks, arm bars, head locks. Mephisto gets some, some pretty, pretty vicious looking kicks in on the side of Tom's head. Uh, and Mephisto eventually gets Jones up in what you think is going to be some sort of like a vertical play, but he just sort of tosses him back first on the top turnbuckle awkwardly and pins him uh, after that. Uh, no, no, next is pretty cool, actually. Um, the Canadian and uh, Victor Rivera versus uh, Tom Jones and S.D. Jones. The Canadian? Um, Who's the, the Canadian? Can- I, we, we, Roddy Piper is <laughs> under the mask here. Um, and this is labeled as 78, but I, looking at it a little closer, I think it's probably 77. Uh, cause I think Roddy was already unmasked, uh, revealed, the Canadian was unmasked and revealed as Piper by 78. Um, I don't think SD was here in 78. I think he was back in the WWF. And I also think Tom Jones is back with the Culkins in 78. So I'm, I'm going to amend this to 77. Um, starts off with Canadian and Black Gordon being interviewed by Gene LaBelle. Pat Patterson interrupts, cuts a promo on the Canadian. Uh, and then you go to the match. Uh, Tom Jones, Victor Rivera started off. Canadian gets in there and he's slipping some kind of foreign object in his mask and headbutting Tom. Uh, Tom is just getting his butt kicked here by Rivera and the Canadian for the first half of the match. And finally, he gets the Hot tag to S.D. Jones, who gets a bunch of offense in here before the Canadian slips the uh, foreign object back in the mask. Um, but this is weird. Eventually, S.D. Jones' head proves too hard, even for the Canadian headbutts with the foreign object. So they start to hurt the Canadian uh, more so than S.D. So S.D. is able to crawl over to Tom, get another hot tag. Uh, and Tom Jones manages to get the foreign objects away from the Canadian, and they both, uh, both he and SD, are trying to unmask uh, the Canadian. But the ref gets fed up with this, throws the match out, DQs everybody. Um, Victor Rivera hits SD and Tom with some chair shots uh, to get them off the Canadian. Then we get a Chavo Guerrero running, uh, and then uh, Rivera Canadian double teaming, stopping Guerrero while the Jones sort of convalesce there in the corner for a while, and then Pat Patterson runs in. Patterson brawls with the heels, almost getting the mask off till they retreat. This is a fun, a fun little match. I, I love seeing SD Jones in a in in a role greater than we are familiar with. Usually seeing SD Jones, that is really fun to see him as a tag champion. I think they also teamed together in Florida when uh, SD was known as Roosevelt Jones. 
So it was Tom huh. Jones and Roosevelt Jones teaming uh, a little bit in 1975 and 1976. Tom and Roosevelt oh, wow. in Florida. And then, of course, Tom and SD in NWA Hollywood. And, and looking on uh, WrestlingData.com, it looks like you are correct in identifying ah. this as 1977. So good call. And then you've got one more. One, one more. more match in the Tom Jones playlist. Is it Delilah or is it What's New Pussycat? It's got to be. We got to close with one of the big hits. <laughs> so, and this is a big hit. This is a hit right here, Al. Um, this is Tully Blanchard versus Tom Jones, uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling. I think, again, I'm, I'm guessing here, I think this is early 1980. Um, Tom is the champion here, Southwest champ. And Tom looks freaking jacked here, also. Um, and if you're looking for just a straight up competitive Tom Jones match out of this batch of matches I'm giving you here, this is the one you want to watch. It's a great. Uh, like just under 10 minute TV match uh, for the Southwest title. Perfect for what it is, exactly what it needs to be. Back and forth battle, heel and babyface. Tully ultimately proves victorious after going to his tights and hitting Tom with a foreign object, which sort of gets ignored by the commentator, which is kind of weird. Um, but yeah, this is, yeah, the, the short answer to your question is yes, Tom Jones is good in the ring. This match proves that Tom Jones is indeed good in the ring. Yeah, Tom um, Jones is good. He looks, he looks great. He's got a, a, yeah. a great look. He broke barriers in the South. Uh, we alluded to earlier an interview from Scott Teal's Whatever Happened to series. Mm. And the interview with Tom is a really good read. Yeah. Uh, I know, uh, to me, uh, one of the things that stood out was uh, when he was working for Goulas, uh, uh, Goulas handed Tom an envelope and, and Tom noticed that it was a really thick envelope. And he thought, <laughs> my God, I'm rich. And he opened it up and there was $150 all in ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he did, however, speak very highly of uh, George Culkin. Yes, uh, we yes, mentioned earlier work for him. He, he had some really, really nice things to say about George in this interview. John, what uh, what stood out to you in this uh, mm -hmm. interview with Scott I, I, I There's a couple things. I really, uh, I love hearing from guys, especially guys from this era who grew up wrestling fans. And he grew up a big wrestling fan. And it's so cool to hear him talk about seeing his uh, first match in, in Florida. Um, some point in his early 20s, he moved to, to Florida, like he said, I think, for a factory job. And he talks about seeing like Eddie Graham and Jody Hamilton, Dickie Steinborn, and then moves to Indianapolis and Dick the Bruiser and Eladable, Bersnyder, Bobo, and Sheik. Um, and he talks about like, what well, you know, then at, at that age, just about anywhere within a 50 mile radius, if there was wrestling, like him and his buddies would go. Um, and he tells a really funny story about seeing the, uh, the Von Brauners. Uh, live and he's and he's he's there up against the aisle and they're making their way to the ring and you know he's telling the story he's like oh brown has got a ton of heat they made you want to kill them you know so tom he, he couldn't control himself he reaches out and he punches one of them <laughs> i think i think carl hits him and then just runs just takes off leaves the venue runs out and he's like and then not two years later tom is in the business in the locker room freaking carl von Bronner <laughs> walks by and tom's like oh shit <laughs> He's going to kill me. And eventually Carl comes over and he's like, I know you. And then Tom apologizes, like, oh, I was, I was, I was just a kid. I and then, then Carl breaks the ice and starts laughing. He's like, you did a good job, kid. So they had a had a big a big laugh about it. And there's also uh, you know, him talking about 
getting smartened up finally at Santos's school and him and him saying that, you know, he knew things weren't 100 percent on the level because he would always try to sit close at ringside so he could see the guys sort of talking to each other, which is such a cool thing to remember about, like, this guy, you know, years past his first match and years past seeing his first match still remembers these little things about his his pro wrestling journey and just like him having his first match against wild bull curry. Like, could you imagine <laughs> like that's your first From match? The frying pan into the fire. I <laughs> wild guess. bull curry. Yeah. So yeah. And if you follow <laughs> me on Twitter at Al gets wrestling, I'll post a couple of articles uh, and some photos about Tom that John found. Uh, there's an article from early 1965 when Tom was wrestling as Bearcat Jones earlier in his career. The article is pretty interesting. Let's just say, according to the reporter, the fans in attendance were not exactly captivated by the action in the ring. Oh. And then there's also a nice article from a McGurk program discussing Jones and Lyons' run as U.S. Tag Team Champions for Leroy McGurk. And of course, that big run happened in 1971 and 1972, which is a time period covered in my book, the 1971 to 1973 Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana Wrestling Almanac which is available on Amazon worldwide, or you can go to www.chartingtheterritories.com for info on how to get a copy of the book and have it autographed by me. Ooh. Yeah, it's exciting. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, since the book came out, I, I've got a little factory going on in my in my home. Uh, you know, I, uh, If you order it directly from me, I include a little 4x6 photo. And again, let me be clear that the photo is not of me, although if, although if you really want one, let me know and I'll do that. But, uh, you know, I do that and I autograph the book and then, I, you know, I got to put the address label on it and, and uh, steal it and stamp it and wrap it and bubble wrap and all this. So I have a little assembly line going in my uh, my small little dining room where huh. I'm putting all these together. And uh, of course, uh, no matter where in the world you are, you can order it through Amazon and uh, since it's print-on-demand, you don't have to worry about paying exorbitant shipping fees. It's reasonably priced wherever you are. You mentioned, uh, before we move on, you mentioned uh, was it Bearcat Jones he was working yeah. at? Bear, yes. And I think uh, that Bruiser, I think, the name of Tom Jones, right? And it, he also, I just think, I don't know why this story just struck me as so funny, just the way he told it. He, he told a funny story about working for, for Jack Pfeffer under another name. And I've heard several stories like this about uh, guys working for Pfeffer. They they get in the ring and they don't even know their 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 ring name du jour or du nuit until the ring announcer introduces them. I forget where this was, but it was for Pfeffer. And the ring announcer announces Tom Jones as Harry Hamilton. And Tom's like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm Harry Hamilton tonight. Let's ready to work. And the crowd starts laughing and shouting like, hey, Harry. Nice tan you got there. And Tom's like, well, geez, what is going on? So they finish the match. They go back to the locker room. Uh, and what happened, Harry Hamilton was actually a white dude. And to, yeah, and to further exacerbate the situation, it was Harry Hamilton's hometown. So Pepper <laughs> just didn't give a shit. Clearly. Yeah, never, yeah. never a dull moment working for, for Jack Pepper. I, uh, I don't think I've told this story on the podcast before, but uh, when I was an independent manager, uh, one time I was up in New Jersey, and uh, one of the uh, one of the trainees was uh, added to the battle royal. I guess because they didn't have enough uh, guys, so they just took a bunch of the, the the trainees and threw them in. And this kid hadn't even hadn't even come up with a ring name yet. 
So, wow. so he comes up to me. He's like, uh, look, uh, they've got me in this battle royal. I'm about to go out. What, what should I, what should I, what should I call myself? And so I looked him up and down and I said, Johnny Underpants. And then I walked away, <laughs> meaning it as a joke. Sure enough, five minutes later, what do I hear over the PA? Now coming to the ring, Johnny Underpants. <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, Johnny Underpants did not wrestle for McGurk, but uh, they did have a, a big crew in 74. As I as we've mentioned, they're generally running three shows a night at this time. So aside from the main eventers that we've already talked about, a little further down the cards, we have Babyfaces, Johnny Eagles, Armand Hussein, Luke Brown, Terry Lathan, and Jack Curtis Jr., now, there's a wrestler, Armand Hussein, who it might be worth looking into to see uh, when he was wrestling in the South and who his opponents were, because uh, yeah. uh, that's one that, that may have broken barriers in some places. Good point, yeah. On the heel side, we have Rocket Monroe, Randy Tyler, Frank Goodish, Mr. Ito, Yasu Fuji, and Steve Lawler. Now, Rocket Monroe... Mr. Ito and Yasu Fuji are managed by Sputnik Monroe, a man who is on the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame ballot. Did either John or I vote for him? Stay tuned to find out later in this podcast. Now, Randy Tyler, Hussein, and Terry Lathan all left the territory during the quarter, pretty much around the same time that Rip Tyler left. Of course, we've talked about Rip, who is a mainstay for Gulf Coast over the years, having been the booker for much of his run here. So given that Randy, Hussein, and Lathan were also regulars in Gulf Coast over the years, it's a reasonable assumption that they're all leaving at the same time as the booker rip was not a coincidence. So the question I don't know the answer to is who was the booker after rip? Because I, I really don't know. Based on the cards, I could see Robley or Sweetan being booker but I think it's still too early in Robley's career for him to get the book somewhere. Sweet Tan makes a lot of sense for so many reasons, so that is possible, but I just don't know it for a fact. We mentioned Frank Goodish as an upper mid-carder. His spot rating goes from a .61 at the beginning of the quarter to a .82 by the end, a clear sign that he is getting pushed. And he's getting pushed as part of a team with Hanson, who spent the entire quarter as a main eventer. Now, the first date I have for them as a team on the house shows is November 13th in Baton Rouge. In fact, just a couple of weeks earlier, they had wrestled against one another on a couple of shows. But by the end of November, they're basically a full-time tag team. And at some point during the quarter, they won the U.S. tag team titles, but the exact date has been lost to history. Even... A um, article years later in one of the McGurk programs published by Norm Keitzer, which lists the history of the U.S. tag team titles and has dates for most of the title changes, does not have a date for this title change. Interesting. Now, some sources list a TV taping on October 10th as the date of their title win. But as I mentioned earlier, Hansen was still a babyface at that time. And Eagles and Terry Lathan are billed as champions on numerous house shows throughout most of November. And they didn't, you know, obviously they tape the TV, you know, uh, and it airs a little bit later, but it wasn't over a month uh, in advance that they would tape a title change. It would have, when they tape it, it would air in 
at least one of the markets immediately that same weekend and then make its way to the other. So with Eagles and Lathan having the titles all through November, with Hanson still being a babyface, the October 10th date doesn't make sense. I've actually asked several people who run results aggregator sites if they knew where they got it from, and two of them actually pointed the finger at each other. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to get into the whole thing, but one site, and and again, all these sites are people that have spent a lot of time putting this stuff together. And with most cases, they're doing it with the best of intentions. But one guy, I asked him where he got it from. He says, oh, I got it from site B. So I asked the guy that runs site B and he says, oh, I think I got that from site A. (laughs) So, you know, we don't know where it came from. In all likelihood, it came from uh, that old uh, wrestling history, title history book that Greg Oliver had put out at this point, what, 30 years ago yeah. uh, that went out of print that uh, over time, uh, you know, gradually people found a lot of inconsistencies with what's in there. So sometime in the fall of 1974, Stan Hansen and Frank Goodish win the tag team titles from Johnny Eagles and Terry Lathan. Now, Eagles, meanwhile, was involved in one of the bigger feuds of the quarter, squaring off with Skandor Akbar. Eagles had returned to the territory over the summer, but in an angle on TV, Akbar threw fire at him during a match. And that was Akbar's thing as a heel. He had turned heel in uh, late 1973, and his big thing in 1974 and 1975 was throwing fire at the various babyfaces. Now, the angle was actually a cover for Eagles going to Japan. And when he returned, they built up to a series of matches. And you can see the details on our blog post for this quarter in the Anatomy of a Feud section. In looking at the towns where we have results, the pattern is your basic babyface wins a non-title match to earn a title shot the following week because Akbar was the North American champion for much of the quarter. In some towns, they have title matches two weeks in a row after the first ends via disqualification. But as we always talk about on this podcast, in this era, each town has its own slightly different narrative based on how well the feud draws. So in some places, it's a two and out. In some places, it's a three and out. So John, of course, uh, Johnny Eagles is better known to fans from Tennessee as who? Johnny Marlin, right? He was the, uh, he was the, the cousin. Right. Cousin the, of Eddie Marlin? The English cousin of, of <laughs> Eddie Marlin, apparently, <laughs> yes. Those hangdog faces on those two guys. <laughs> the Marlin clan was, you know, sp- spread their seed on a worldwide, I guess. So, yeah, Eagles and Akbar was a big feud. Some of the other top feuds, as measured by the statistic we have called FLW, which stands for Feud Length and Weeks, are Sweetan versus Hansen, Buck Robley versus Dr. X, Sweetan versus Akbar, Robley versus Eagles, and Robley versus Mantel. So as you can see, it's basically the main eventers feuding with various versions of the other main eventers. And that's typically what we see in most territories. Uh, it's not like uh, you're wrestling the last 20 years where two guys are married to one another for three months straight, and that's the only thing that's emphasized. Here, there's a lot more of throwing things out there and, and seeing how they do in different towns. And if things do well, they'll they'll you know, let it go on. But a lot of times they just, you know, have some one and dunce. Now, I love the, uh, what is the one result from, a, is it from Wichita Falls? The the results are so proper from the Wichita Falls from, from, uh, the, uh, Akbar and Johnny Eagles. The, the referee disallowed the fall. 
because the English lad's foot and lower limb was over the bottom ring rope. And such a such a yes. proper result in the Wichita Falls paper. Yes, and then <laughs> after that, the, when I say eagles, then quickly arose and flattened him with a roll-up. Yeah, it's so poetic, yeah. Well, you know, that's, in reading all these old newspaper articles, you know, prose is yeah. a, a lost art. Absolutely. Uh, even just, you know, the clever wordplay in headlines of titles uh, oh, yeah. yep. is just something that has been lost. Instead, you know, we have headline, Florida Man Makes Announcement, <laughs> yeah. which was uh, the the day we were recording this, that was the headline. Well, no, it wasn't even the headline. It was the bottom. The, it was on the bottom of the front page of the New York Post. Uh, this, of course, was Donald Trump announcing his uh, candidacy for presidency. They literally relegated it to the bottom of the cover where it says Florida Man Makes Announcement. Oh, geez. Yeah. Now, further down the cards, some of the other newcomers appearing in the territory for the first time were Abdul Zatar, Bill Crouch, and Otto Von Heller. Now, Abdul Zatar is probably better known as uh, Rick Sanchez to a lot of people. And of course, he was uh, one of those, you know, one of the many journeymen uh, in wrestling over the year. He also wrestled for Goulas as a blue scorpion and I think a green shadow. Oh. Over the years, he had a short run in Stampede, and I actually believe he worked uh, post wrestling. He worked at Abdullah the Butcher's restaurant here in Atlanta oh, for several that's, years. That's a nice little thing to have on the resume. Yeah. Now Otto oh. von Heller, uh, real name Michael Hull. He spent some time wrestling as Mike Hall before taking on the von Heller gimmick in early 1973. So he wrestled in the WWWF. He teamed with Carl Von Steiger for Goulas, and his career pretty much ended in 1979, although he would randomly show up on WWWF shows a few years later whenever they were in upstate New York. I still now, remember him like an ungimmicked, uh, not really ungimmicked, but just him as Mike Hall in like 79, some of those TV tapings wrestling like Fred Curry or Steve Travis or guys like that. But he still had that the cool black singlet and shaved head and looked like he looked like he looked like he might beat somebody still, even right. even at his advanced age. Yeah, he was he was in he was in pretty good shape. And then so finally Bill Crouch, uh best known in wrestling circles as Butch Malone. He wrestled uh, in the AWA early in his career and was actually in the 1974 movie The Wrestler. In 1977 and 1978, he teamed with Jim Dalton as a couple of different masked gimmicks, first as the Exterminators for Jarrett, and then as the Masked Marauders in Florida. But after leaving the squared circle for good, he moved on to the stage, appearing in numerous theatrical productions in Washington State, and he also appeared in the 2019 Western Hot Bath and a Stiff Drink 2, which starred Frankie (laughs) Muniz from uh, Malcolm in the Middle, and Robert Patrick. So, John, Bill Crouch wrestled as an exterminator, oh. and then years <laughs> later starred in a movie with Robert Patrick, who was an ex-terminator. Terminator. Wow, it's awful. It's funny. You, uh, you see like the current photo, or a current-ish photo of Bill Crouch, and you're like, this guy looks like he'd be great. In like a Western movie, and you look at all the credits on his IMDb, and it's like, yeah, you know, bartender in a Western, yeah. random town. He's perfect, perfect, perfect job there at the casting for Bill Crouch. And he probably knows how to work a bar fight pretty well, you know, from his time uh, yeah, in the ring. Exactly. So they, could, yeah. they could do that. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, the, us, 
it's so many names that just there were guys that just were in and out wrestling wise, never really got that big a thing, but they had interesting post wrestling lives. So Bill Crouch, a star of the stage and screen, especially if it was a Western. Yes, 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 yes. But the biggest newcomer of them all, as we mentioned earlier, was Andre the Giant, who came to the area for the first time in October. He wrestled on seven shows in six days. They literally stacked a double shot uh, on October 13th in Baton Rouge and Lake Charles, which was rare for the time. Of course, Mid-South was very well known for doing that on Sundays years later. But this was pretty rare. But they wanted they wanted Andre on as many shows as they could. And on these uh, this little seven-show run, he worked exclusively in Battle Royals. And while we don't have results from all the shows, the three shows that we do have results for, which was Baton Rouge, Shreveport, and Monroe, Andre won the Battle Royal all three of those times. And as much as we like to think Andre always won the Battle Royal or Haystack always won the Battle Royal, the more you look at these results, that's not true. And so to see Andre winning all three, and if he won these three, he probably won all, all the others as well. That's pretty rare. Also, him only being in the Battle Royals is rare as well. And it might have been a thing yeah. just because it was his first time. But usually when Andre would come in, he, you know, helps one of the baby faces. Uh, you know, he's brought in to team with one of the baby faces against the top heel tag team or maybe the top heels that are about to leave the territory. So this is uh, their way for the underdog baby face, the undersized baby face to finally get over on them by bringing in Andre. Yep. Uh, did you ever see Andre in a battle royal in your early days of watching him on the WWF TV? Because I, I don't, you know, they didn't really show battle royals on TV all that often. Yeah. It wasn't until you know later when I would start watching the uh, the Madison Square Garden house yeah. shows on the MSG Network, or when they would do the Tuesday night uh, shows on USA, where they would show house show matches. That you're first exposed to the concept of a battle royal. Yeah, I think my first, oh, I'm trying to think here. I think my first, the first time I saw, first time I actually saw, it was the end of a battle royal, I think. It was probably early 84. Uh, and it was when the WWF had started running in St. Louis. Um, and they were showing something, I think it was on... I don't know if it was on the USA Network show, like All American Wrestling, or if it was on the, the regular show, but it was the end of a battle royal where uh, it was Big John Stud and Andre the Giant were uh, like in the battle royal, and then Hulk Hogan got involved, and they, I, 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 they somehow I forget if Andre or Hulk got eliminated, um, and then it was just either Andre and Stud. Or Hulk and so, but there was a weird, almost like Andre Hulk face-off for a moment mm-hmm. in like in this. I think it might have been it might have even been outside the ring in this battle royal, but it was like that. That, that was the first time I saw a battle royal. Battle royal, generally speaking, like they. And that's the thing. Battle royals seem like really cool to to to, to like yeah. the idea of it, and then you watch it, and you're like, oh, it's kind of it's kind of well. They don't sucks. they don't play well on TV, or certainly not, and no. that in that time frame nowadays with more camera angles and a lot more blocking and staging you can yeah. have you can make it enjoyable to watch on tv but in this day you know 
Obviously, they didn't call matches the way wrestlers call matches today, and certainly even less so for battle royals. You know, people, people, you know, you knew who the last three in there were, and everybody else, it was they were in there until they were just bored out of their minds or ready to go, <laughs> and they would beg someone to throw them out. <laughs> so they, they don't make for compelling television. No. But, you know, on the house shows, it's a fun little thing uh, to put together, especially, you know, and, and what a great way to introduce Andre to mm-hmm. this territory uh, would be to have him uh, just doing the battle royal. So to, to wet the anticipation of the fans to actually see him in one-on-one or two-on-two or handicap match type action, which of course would come in later years. So for more information on the fourth quarter of 1974, including listings for 219 known house shows, that's in a 13 week period. So that's an average of over 15 a week. You can check out our blog at chartingtheterritories.com and to learn even more about the first three years of the decade in McGurk land, be sure to check out Charting the Territories presents the 1971 to 1973 Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana Wrestling Almanac, available worldwide on Amazon or go to chartingtheterritories.com to find out how you can get an autographed copy directly from me if you live in the continental United States of America. So, John, as your yes. as your are you ready for your your big shining moment? I'm as ready as I'm going to be. All right. Ready as I'm going to be. Time for one of my favorite monthly features. <laughs> it's John plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. John, question number one. This is an easy one. Who is known as the Wild Man of the Sudan? That's Abdullah the Butcher. Correct. Okay. Second question. Which wrestling star made his professional wrestling debut in Toronto, Canada in 1968 versus Firpo Zabisco? 1968? 1968 in Canada. 1968 in Canada. 1968 in Canada. I'm trying to think of the time frame of this game. Gordon, Gordon Soli's Gordon Florida. Probably Florida-centric. Bisco. I'll guess Dusty Rhodes. That is incorrect. The answer is Rocky Soulman Johnson. Oh! All right. Question number three. This wrestler once pulled a Greyhound bus. Who is he? Is this a multiple choice? Uh, no. No. <laughs> Okay. I'm, and uh, I, I'm not uh, equi- I could I could make a multiple choice, but I, I you know. Okay. Uh, I uh, uh, I would guess 
Hmm. Think of all the wrestling I mean, the gr- strong men. I, I know, not, great and, but not nece- and this one isn't necessarily thought of as a strong man in the Ken Patera sense. It's not Ken Patera, but a different okay, type that, yeah. of strong man. Great Antonio. They, no, that is going, incorrect. Are they going Joe LaDuke with this? Yes. Ah, oh, Joe, Joe LaDuke. I should have gone Joe LaDuke for four. Should have gone yeah. Joe LaDuke. Yep. Yes. All yeah. right. Huh, yeah. John, you're, you're one for three. See Oof. if you can get up to 50% with a true-false question. Okay. Once on national television, wrestler Pac Song split a ripe watermelon with his bare hands. True. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're, no, it, you are correct. Two for okay. four. Just wanted, to, just wanted to mess with you a little bit. I saw something with him and Gary Hart doing some something. And there's this thing of him and Gary Hart by the pool and they're chopping stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. All right. Disappointing, but those were tough. Uh, those those middle two questions were really, really difficult. Uh, I should have I should have gotten the Leduc one. I should have I should have So you should have been this. you should have gotten a C. You should have been three for four. Yeah. All right. All right. Well yeah, so yeah. and so you are you are not quite yet in Gordon Soley's wrestling trivia hall of fame. Okay. But let's shift and talk about the wrestling observer. Hall of Fame. Each of us are voters for the Hall of Fame, and this is uh, our third year as voters. And we are now going to reveal our ballots. Of course, they were due earlier this month, uh, but we held off on announcing them publicly uh, until now. So drum roll, please. I'll go first. Uh, I'm going to name uh, who I voted for and give a little brief explanation as to why. Uh, and also, uh, when this podcast is out, we're going to have another playlist on our YouTube channel with selected matches from many of the uh, folks that we voted for. So be sure to check that out, charting the territories on YouTube. Uh, the first category I voted in was the historical performers era. And I voted, and I believe this might be the third year in a row. If not, it's definitely the second out of my three years voting that I voted for this person. And that is Sputnik Monroe. Uh, I feel not only his importance in desegregating wrestling arenas uh, in the South, but he also had a really long run as a wrestler in just about every territory he was in. He was put in a main event spot. He had charisma. He, you know, he uh, his work was was better than most, uh, and certainly better than most of the the wild heels that you think about from this time frame. Uh, and I really think it's time that Sputnik Monroe got into the Hall of Fame. I also voted for Enrique Torres. And one of the things that really put me over the top for Torres was an article on uh, Figure Four Observer website, f4wonline.com. I believe it was from last year, but it made the case for Torres. Uh, He just, he was a headliner in Southern California, drew some huge houses against a variety of opponents, but then also became a regular opponent of Luthez not just in California, but in other places as well, and in places where Torres wasn't a regular at the time. Like, it's one thing when Thez would come to to a territory, he'd take on the top stars of the territory, but every now and then, when Thez would visit a territory, that territory would also fly in an opponent Hmm. for Thez, or for, you know, whoever the world champion was at the time. And seeing how many different places Torres 
wrestled against Thez, and these are places that Torres wasn't working in full time at the time, really, you know, without footage, without really good attendance records, this right there tells me that that Torres was thought of extremely highly as a wrestler and as a draw. So I voted for him. I also voted for a tag team. And I think to me, this is the team uh, in many ways. This is almost the barometer of uh, if, if you uh, should be voting in the Hall of Fame or not. Uh, I voted for Argentina Rocca and Miguel Perez. I think they're a no brainer, even though it was a very short run. And I, I will say I have an issue with a lot of the tag teams that were added this year because so many of them had just a few years together as a team and, and we're supposed to only evaluate them for their time together as a team. And it just, it, it becomes really weird because then, you know, that for someone like Sergeant Slaughter, does that mean when we're evaluating Sergeant Slaughter, we don't count his time as a team with Kernodal? I, I, it was, yeah. it was really confusing. Yeah. It, it seems to me that Dave was trying to, he made a mistake by not having tag teams from the get go and he's trying to make up for that. And and you're almost in a situation where you're applying a different set of rules to these tag teams than you are to other wrestlers and to the wrestlers that people have voted on for many years. But I voted for Rocca and Perez because to me, uh, they belong in, as does a man you just mentioned not too long ago, John, Wild Bull Curry. And uh, there's an article on VoicesOfWrestling.com that uh, came out uh, in late October. It's time to put Wild Bull Curry in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Between reading that article and also reading Brian Solomon's book on the Sheik, really put Bull fresh in my mind this year as compared to years past. And then uh, my final vote in the historical performance era was what I'm calling a strategic vote. And that is for the Von Brauners and Saul Weingroff. And the reason I call it a strategic vote is I want to ensure they stay on the ballot until we get perhaps more clarification on how tag teams are supposed to be evaluated. Because in this case, yep. some people are saying, well, does that mean we don't count time when the Von Brauners were in places without Saul? Or also worth noting, there were two different Kurt Von Brauners. And Dave said, you're supposed to consider both versions of this team, but that doesn't mesh well with the other rules he established for these tag teams. And it's something a lot of uh, readers might not know or think about. So I, I sort of think the Von Brauners and Saul should stay on there. And perhaps by next year, we'll have some sort of modification or clarification of the rules for tag teams that will make it clearer whether they belong. Because, I mean, they had a long, when you consider both versions of the team, they had a really long run. Um, when they were past their prime, they were still considered highly enough to uh, usually be the cornerstone of outlaw promotions that would start up in the South. Um, Phil Golden, for example. So, uh, and to me, as a former wrestling manager, as a former Jewish wrestling manager, the idea of, Saul Weingroff managing the Von Brauners <laughs> is fascinating to me. And you you just know they had to have gotten ridiculous heat in Tennessee playing off of that dynamic. So that's why I voted for them. I also voted in the modern performers category. And this, my choices for the modern performers category would be the greatest Survivor Series team of all time. 
<laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear it. You've this. got Rick and Scott Steiner, The Junkyard Dog, Sergeant Slaughter, and Becky Lynch. Wow, look at that. I, I was surprised, surprised as anyone that I voted for Becky. The same thing, I remember the first year I was a voter, I was looking Orton. things over and I ended up uh, voting for Randy Orton. And I was surprised. But I think Becky, she's uh, yes, she's still in her prime. She still has uh, a lot of her story yet to be told. But I think based on the story she's told so far, she belongs in. She absolutely was a trailblazer and made women's wrestling um a big thing in the, you know, in the WWE uh, main eventing WrestleMania, becoming a huge star, breaking through. She, had, she recently portrayed Cindy Lauper on The Rock, uh, sorry, on Young Rock. So, you know, she's now broken through into acting. I, I really think based on her work and her longevity and her importance that that Becky Lynch, as is, belongs in the Hall of Fame. Of course, I've always felt strongly about Junkyard Dog. I'm... I was pushed over the fence on Sergeant Slaughter last year, and I have previously voted for Rick and Scott Steiner. I think they were incredible in the ring. They were innovative in the ring. They worked a style that didn't look, you know, that didn't match their look, but they were amazing at it. Uh, they could do, you know, Scott could do some amazing things acrobatically, but at the same time, he was still a tough son of a bitch. Um, and they had runs in the U.S. and in Japan. They got my vote. And in the non-wrestlers category, I voted for Bobby Davis, Stanley Weston, and Roy Welch. I think Bobby Davis, uh, again, as a former wrestling manager, Bobby being the pioneer of the modern heel wrestling manager, makes him an easy choice in my book. I think Stanley Weston absolutely belongs in for all he has done for, uh, you know, uh, publicizing and promoting wrestling on a national basis. And with both uh, Don Owen and Jim Crockett Jr. going in last year, that sort of sets the bar for which promoters should be in. And I think Roy Welch, in what I believe is his first year on the ballot or first year after being off for a while, I think if Don Owen's in, I think Roy Welch is, is a very strong candidate as well. So he got my vote this year. So, John, who'd you vote for? So... I'll go in the same same order uh, with the uh, historical first. Uh, June Byers voted for old June Byers there. Um, I think you know talk longevity for a period of you know from like the mid fifties to the mid sixties fifty four to sixty four probably. You know it's it's her and Mildred Burke in the pre pre Mula dominant years, and I and I. I feel like I don't know how to put this without sounding insulting um, to women's wrestling in general, but I think she deserves a lot of credit for, for legitimizing the women's wrestling of that era, to, for lack of a better word, for making, for sort of toning down the more brash and showy aspects right. of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, and, you know, they, Byers and Burke, were not special attractions in the way that no. after them, most women wrestlers were yeah. slotted, were positioned. They were yeah. stars. They were it's, main eventers. Yeah, they were main eventers. Yeah. Um, she got my vote. A uh, guy you voted for, Wild Bull Curry. Uh, I love Wild Bull Curry. Um, he checks every, every, every freaking box for me. You know, longevity, Jesus Christ, you know, 50 years yeah. oh, and even as a 63 year old man and these reels i have where it's in 1976 for the love of god guy's born in 1913 he still looks scary and intimidating you know he just looks and he's just a pioneer of that 
I, I hate to use the term hardcore because of all the implications of that term, you know, but he's really just like a pioneer of that wild man archetype, just like wild mm. really applies. There's no, he just, he just seems like a wild man. Um, Rock and Perez, I voted for them. And like you said, it's not a, not a very long run, but I, I think it's from, from 1957 to 60, what is it, 28 out of 34 Madison Square Garden cards? They Something made them like that, yeah. Something, yeah, and that's just the garden, you know, let alone whatever else they were doing around that time. And the gates, you know, they're like regularly drawing $60,000 gates, you know, that. Um, and the other thing, too, like as far as like a guy like Miguel Perez, like uh, I don't, maybe this is lost on a lot of more, more modern fans, but like, Rocka had already been wrestling for 10 years at this point. You know, he had slowed down a lot. So, like, Perez was, like, the new, the younger guy they put him with. So I think Perez, like, you know, Perez is not going to be a Hall of Famer himself. But I think he here he gets that credit for helping to extend, you know, extend Rocka's career a little bit, you know. And, I, and it, yeah, and I think these guys are just, like you said, this is such a, a no-brainer a no for a Hall of Fame, especially with as with with the new tag team thing that we have here like this this is this is the they have to go in um i also voted for enrique torres um i read that thing that you were talking about last year and i i i, I totally forgot about that lose Bez thing with that sold me on him last year but my notes of this year is like you I mean just a huge a huge star in the, the early tv era um and what's impressive to me is like you look at him everywhere he went and you ex- you expect a guy like Enrique Torres to be popular, you know, in Texas and Southern California, you know, but for Enrique Torres to be po- doing do that same thing, you know, in Canada, in the Carolinas, in the Midwest and in Georgia, you know, had a great feud with the Vishans to wrap up his career in the, in the late 60s. He, he's just a, he's a no brainer for me as well. Um, Johnny Rougeau voted for him. I think he should absolutely be in. I remember last year around this time I was in uh, Canada, Montreal, and talked to uh, Bertrand Bear about him when I was up there. And he sold me. He makes a much more convincing argument for Johnny Rojo than I can right now. But, you know, aside from like aside from the wrestling and the, the promoting, just like a legitimate pop culture icon in, in Montreal. Um Archie Mongolian Stomper Gouldie. He's another one who checks every single box for me. Like, I just I love the fact that he's able to do basically that same gimmick in Knoxville in Calgary for thirty damn years. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. I, I just and I he's also on that you know sort of that wild bull curry thing where he's just like just such a, a scary, a legitimately scary, scary dude. Um, Rocky Johnson. Voted for Rocky. This is a tricky one. We're going to talk about outside the ring, and it's a slippery slope to to go down with wrestlers, especially. But uh, the guy who was on top, uh, every or near the top, everywhere he went for ever, for 20- ever since his debut in 1968. And where was yeah. that, John? That was in Canada against who? Uh, Pam, the bit, yeah. The, Throw pros of Bisco? Yes, yeah. Okay. <laughs> God. Um, does that count as it? That's not. Okay. Uh, but yeah, and he, everywhere he went, and he went, and he went everywhere, you know, and except for Vern Gagne, which is make what we will of that. Um, 
And then I voted, this is interesting too, for the tag teams, uh, Mad Dog and Butcher Bajan. This is an interesting one because it's, it's really like two separate tag team runs. You know, they had the run uh, late 50s, early 60s, and then, you know, the late 60s, um, early 70s run from the AWA into the, the Grand Prix years. And then you have in between that, you know, the, the varying single runs of, of varying success in, in, in between those years. And then you also have the, the, the third Vashon, <laughs> who was not included in this ballot here. Um, so that's, that's interesting. But I, I, they're, they're, they're Hall of Famers in, in, in my book. Um, and modern performers in U.S. Canada, I voted for the Junkyard Dog. Um, he, yeah, I mean, he, again, he, there's, it's, I, 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 I don't see how he's not a Hall of Famer, frankly. Um, like Dave's has always talked about maximum impact and he, he absolutely oh. had that maximum impact. He absolutely. And it's another thing too. And it, it the, this next guy I'm going to say too, is sort of the same thing. Sergeant Slaughter. Um, I, Love Sergeant Slaughter. Love, love, love Sergeant Slaughter. Um, the stuff with Crockett is great. Stuff in the, the AWA is is, is great. Is Destroyer Mark Three, uh, WWS stuff, um, and even the little bit of that early AWA stuff after that is is is, is passable. You know, I'd rather not watch him in 1991. But it's like if we're if we're inducting people who are still in the prime of their career I, you know I, you know I, it's this is this is the argument i make um it's you can't we'll, we'll we can't ignore the 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 shitty latter part of their career if they're already in you know what if aj styles just gets you know it gets super fat and gets even weirder hair and facial hair you know and just can't work anymore then what Right, you know what well, I mean? it, it shouldn't alter your perception of of his prime, which has been yeah. going on for twenty years at this point. Yeah, 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 and you know, but but and Sergeant Slaughter, I think, has earlier run pre you know pre golf stuff in the nineties. Like that's that's enough. That's enough for him to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, I think it's more than enough. Um, Rick and Scott Steiner, I voted for them last year. Voted for them this year. Um, I think if you look at, you know, what, what qualifies a team as a, as a hall of famer and look at how many years they won the wrestling observer, uh, tag team of the year during there, then yes, there are no brainers for the hall of fame. Um, did you vote for Becky too? Did we have matching ballots? <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh. I voted for, I voted for Kevin and Carrie and David Von Erich. Okay. Um, I I can't I don't see either of them uh as Hall of Famers on their own. Um but together I think that I think yes, absolutely. As that unit, you know, even if even if you know, and it's tricky because I'm not I'm I'm not necessarily inducting uh you know, their them necessarily as as oh how were they as a six man tag 
team, you know, how many, how many matches did it actually wrestle as, as a six man? Like how many of those are there is what I, you know, there's not as many as you think. Right. Because um, a lot of time it's two of the three along with Adams or Adidas yep. or Mike. So there's a lot less there of actual six man tag team matches with these three, but it's just the group. As a but whole, if, if the Freebirds could get in as a unit when most of the time only two of them were wrestling in any one match at a time, yeah. this is sort of the reverse of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and non wrestlers, um, Bobby Davis, love Bobby Davis. Uh, any there's not a ton of Bobby Davis out there. The Bobby Davis that is out there should be enough to sell you on him as a Hall of Famer. <laughs> He's just like. The archetype of like that Bobby Heenan, Jim Coronet, uh, wise ass, rich kid type uh, type manager. Um, I love Bobby Davis. Um, James Melby. Voted for James Melby. I reference his work either directly or indirectly every single day. Dare I say we might not be having this conversation right now were it not for James Melby. Um, the Grand Wizard. Um I love the Grand Wizard as a manager. Um, one of my favorite managers from 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 that era of me growing up, the, the three wise men, and you got Abdul Farouk. And what I also enjoy about him is, from what I've heard from like the the older guys, like uh, you know Tom Burke talking about him. Uh, Ernie Roth was very good to to the the fan, I guess the smart fans you can call him. Uh, at the WFIA conventions and was very open about talking uh, to fans and very, very well, well regarded in that aspect that sort of sold him even more on me or more for me. Um, and I also voted for Roy Welch and uh, also Morris Siegel. Um, you know, I think for me too, it's like if Paul Bosch is in Morris Siegel should be into just for running that, it was a huge, huge territory, one of the biggest of the time, but also very, you have to credit it for being just a solid, steady territory for 30 years. Um, and same thing for Roy Welsh. Um, yeah, this is so successful for 30 years plus. And Roy Welch is a guy, too. Like, think, of, think about how different wrestling would be without Roy Welch. Like he's one of those guys. You remove Roy Welch from the wrestling equation. A lot of stuff is different. Um, so that's another reason why I'm, I'm voting for him along with what, along with the reasons you gave, like if Don Owen and, and Jim Crockett Jr. are in, then, then Roy Welch is a, is a shoe in for me. And there, there we go. have my ballot. There All right. Is. So there are both of our ballots for the wrestling observer hall of fame. Hopefully our selections uh, get in. I've spoken with a few other voters and seen some ballots, and I think a lot of the folks we voted for seem to be getting more support than they had in prior years. So hopefully that's enough to put guys like Sputnik and JYD and Slaughter uh, over, you know, over the edge, over the limit, and get them yeah. in. We'll find out, and I guess we'll uh, update it next month or, or whenever. When does Dave normally announce? It changes. It varies. Okay. So <laughs> when, when we know, we'll we'll bring bring it back up on the podcast and see how we did. But next month on the podcast, we're going to finish up 1978 in the McGurk territory and look at the fourth quarter. Will the feud between Ernie Ladd and Ray Candy ever end? Rock Hunter 
expands his organization, and a whole lot more. There's going to be a whole lot more for you to learn about in addition to everything you learned about, hopefully, this month. I know John and I learn new things each and every month, and at the end of the podcast, we each name one new thing we learned, and it's called This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn this month? Well, Al, you've read Jody Hamilton's book, right? Yes. Everybody should read it. Uh, it's a great book, whether you're familiar with the assassin's career or not. So much great stuff going back to the late 40s. It almost it's one of those books that could almost function as, as a reference book at times. There's so much information there. Um, what I learned, however, is not from that book. It's from an entirely different Jody Hamilton interview uh, where he is talking about his older half-brother, Larry Hamilton, better known as the Missouri Mauler. Uh, and in reading this interview, this month I learned that Larry Hamilton had at least two other gimmicks, I guess uh, we can call them gimmicks, that he used. Uh, now, Larry Hamilton, if you see photos of him in the, in the 50s, had that longer hair and the sideburns, you know. Um, and while working in the Midwest Central States, promoter uh, Gus Karras saw Larry in the, in the locker room playing the guitar. And Gus Karras is like, you, you, you look and you sound like Elvis Presley. So, naturally, Gus Karras has Larry start coming to the ring, strumming his guitar and singing songs. <laughs> and it got to the point where like they would start to use this as like to start angles for a fuse. Like he would write a song calling the, the Dusek brothers, you know, river rats from Omaha or something. And they, then they worked their program together. Um, and Jody in the interview was like, it wasn't like the honky tonk man, but the gimmick sounds, sounds a lot like the honky tonk. <laughs> it wasn't like it, except it only looked like it sounded like it and behaved like it. <laughs> yes. Um, also, in 1958, uh, early 58, uh, Larry worked in Houston as Casey McShane, the brother of Danny McShane, huh. for a couple of months. Um, and he, he combed his hair all nice, and he grew like the little Danny McShane mustache, you know? <laughs> it's, like, it's crazy. If you look at photos of him and the, uh, here and then in the, the Elvis gimmick, it's almost like an actor transforming for like a new filmer. It's, it's, it's really it's impressive how he pulled off both of these looks within a couple of years. <laughs> okay, I, I learned those. Those were new to me too, so I learned that as well. But the other thing that I learned this month, uh, we've talked in the past about how stipulation matches in some places sometimes had different names. For example, what we generally call a Texas death match. In some places, at sometimes they would call them Texas rules, mm -hmm. possibly because the promoter didn't like to use the word death in promoting mm -hmm. a wrestling card. But at the same time, in other places, the term Texas rules was something different. And it usually meant a match where the referee let things slide. Not necessarily no DQ, but the referee was more lenient. Uh, in a Texas rules match. So, you know, as much as we like to think that there's some official booklet in the NWA headquarters that says <laughs> a Texas death match must have this stipulation, this type of match must be this, so on and so forth. That wasn't the case. And this month I learned of two variations in the names of stipulation matches in Jim Crockett's territory in the early 1970s. The first is what we typically refer to as a Texas tornado match where all four 
or six participants in a tag match can all be in the ring at the same time. In Crockett's territory in the early 70s, this was referred to as a Texas Royal or even a Texas Battle Royal. But they are very clearly, from reading the stipulations, they are the same thing as what we call a Texas Tornado match. And in the Crockett territory, some of the feuds would build up to a blowout, to a blow-off match, which was called a lights-out match. But this was not what we think of as a lights-out match, which is a, as you know, where they dim the lights, turn them back on, and then it's an anything goes, no DQ, whatever, kill each other. Unsanctioned, yeah. Right, unsanctioned. These lights-out matches were taped fist matches, but with a slight twist. Based on the match descriptions I've read, both wrestlers would tape their fists, they are able to throw closed fists as well as traditional wrestling moves, and the match must end by knockout or by one wrestler conceding the match. Huh. So it's, a, it's more of a lights out, meaning you get knocked out. Exactly. It's a, it's a, yes, ah. that's what, yes, the wrestler gets his lights out, not the arena get, <laughs> getting their lights out. So, But again, this is just you know, further evidence that to try and encapsulate the history of wrestling, you know, into into one volume is impossible because every place had their own slight little differences and variations at times. And uh, even in the naming of matches, we now know that a lights out match might not always mean what you think. And now we know a Texas Royal, at least in the Crockett territory in the early 70s, was a Texas Tornado match. Yeah. So our blog at chartingtheterritories.com is updated regularly. It's also the best place to find out how to order the Charting the Territories book covering McGurk's territory in the early 1970s. And of course, this podcast comes out the fourth Thursday of every month. For more from me, you can follow me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. I also appeared recently on... Uh, one of the Voices of Wrestling podcasts. They do a big thing every year around Hall of Fame season where they run down all the different categories and make cases for all the candidates. And they have a different guest uh, joining them for each section. And I was the guest for the historical performers category this year. So it's one of a series of podcasts covering the Observer Hall of Fame at voicesofwrestling.com. Also, I have recorded this and I'm hoping it will have already come out by the time this podcast comes out. But I appeared on an edition of the Portland WrestleCast with Jim Valley. Oh, cool. We recorded it earlier in November. And uh, hopefully it should be out by the time you're hearing this. So if you're a, uh, a member at uh, F4WOnline.com, the Figure Four Weekly slash Wrestling Observer website, you can listen to Jim and I talk about 1979 in Portland Wrestling on the latest edition of the Portland WrestleCast. Also, in the very near future on our blog, I'm going to put out a uh, condensed version of the Wrestling Almanacs that I've been putting out covering Portland in 1979. Of course, if you're familiar with that territory in 79, the big feud was Roddy Piper turning babyface and feuding with Buddy, Buddy Rose. But there's a lot of other interesting names showing up up and down the cards. It's a really fascinating year in the Portland Territory. So we're going to uh, have that on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And John, uh, go ahead and plug your Twitter. I know you're really close 
to getting 2,000 followers. Oh, guess what I, 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 I took note of right before we started recording this evening. What's that? I Minutes before we started recording, I hit 2,000 followers. Hey, all right. All right. So now we got to get you to 3,000. <laughs> but if you want to follow me uh, and help me on my way to 3,000, uh, it's at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Follow me for lots of lots of good good fun wrestling content. Uh, and speaking of Portland, yeah, we just had the on the Tales from the Tor- Territory show. We just had a uh, the Portland episode. Yeah, I just watched uh, that uh, while I was on the elliptical this morning. <laughs> uh huh. That's a good one. Uh, there's a lot of lot of lot of fun stories. If you like if you like Portland, uh, check that out as well. Uh, yeah, that's all I got for this month to plug. All right, that's all. Plenty, plenty of places to hear what we have to say, both in the written word and in the uh, vocal range. Uh, and <laughs> at least my voice is not as bad as Sergeant Slaughter, uh, the Cobra Clutch. To be the first to know when new podcast episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. We'll see you um, the fourth Thursday of December. So right around the holiday season is the next time this podcast will come out. So, John, we'll see you in December. See you in December, you maggots. That was my start. Florida.